I've always thought there's, you know, competition actually makes us better and, you know, makes us think more about, you know, the decisions we're making. And absolutely, I think, you know, having startups in this space, especially because I think, I do think Newman Chase and CRBT are very unique in this because of all the exit acquisitions they have made over the years. They've had to think about meaningfully about how do we make these pieces fit together? What works? What doesn't work? But, you know, if that if organisations haven't sort of grown in that way, you tend to end up with quite a, a, a stale kind of this is the way we always did it and this is the way it's going to happen. So, you know, having those new players out there and you know having a passion to do something differently you know and Ben Ben Sukir is probably you know the best example of this he's always trying to shake things up he's like just because this is the way it's always been done doesn't mean this is the way it should always be done and you know and that I think you know just helps everyone really. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. I'm your host, Roman Zelchenko. Today is episode number 69. We're back after a short hiatus where I was actually in Italy for over a month. And so I probably could have done the show from there, but I decided to enjoy eating pasta every single day instead. Today for episode 69, I'm, I'm really excited because we have on our show today, Manpreet Dami, who is a managing director at Newland Chase which is a large global immigration firm. And among the things that Manpreet oversees is Newland Chase's immigration strategy. And part of that, of course, is their technology stack. So we're going to get into you know, Manpreet's story, how her family immigrated to the UK, and you know her sort of personal connection to the immigration space, and then talk about sort of her career and starting at what became Newland Chase eventually and now kind of ending back there. Of course, what's really interesting to me and hopefully to all of us, is going to be talking about the technology that Newland Chase uses. Their product is called ImiSmart, and we'll you know we'll get into all of that. I'm really excited. I'm your host, Roman Zelchenko. I know I mentioned that I'm the founder of GMI Rocket and the uh, co-founder of Laborless, which is an immigration startup that automates H-1B compliance. So without further ado, I'm very excited to have Manpreet on. So Manpreet, thank you so much for joining all the way also from UK, might I add. And I know it's pretty late there. So I really appreciate you kind of taking the time and staying up a little late. Yeah, I cannot lie. I would have rather this were not 9pm on Friday night, so I could enjoy a glass of wine, but I am nevertheless delighted to be here. Well, you know, now that I think about it, I Probably we should have prepped and both had glasses of wine and have it together. It's it's only four o'clock, but it's also Friday, so it's it's all good here in New York. Um, well, yeah, thank you. I really do appreciate you, you know, taking the time and, and being here. So um, thanks for that. Um, I you know I I love to. I hope I gave a quick summary of you know of your background and did it sort of justice. But I know, of course, that's what we're going to dive into, um, and we'll of course get to everything you do at Newland Chase and sort of everything the the company does as an organization from an immigration standpoint and from a technology standpoint. But as always, what's really fascinating to me, in addition to that, is, you know, the guest sort of background and, and life story. You know, I think I think learning about how you get to where you are is just as interesting and important as what you do today, right? Our, our lives are, all, are also what we've done in the past and, and sort of the decisions we've made. So I'm really excited to get into that. So Manpreet, I love starting and like learning about, you know, the, the background of each guest. And I think if I understand you correctly, you, your family moved to 
the UK, which is where you currently are um, from India. Were you born in the UK after your family moved or were you born outside of the UK and moved with them? No, I was born in the UK. Got it. So I, I came to the US when I was two, right? So I technically, I mean, I'm an immigrant, um, but my memories really are from from the US. And it's it's a really interesting kind of, you know, tug of war of like, where am I from? Where do I belong? I also imagine even if you grow up, let's you know, like you in the UK, you're still, you know, immigrant household, you know, like you, you're, you're, you know, your cultural ties are both in, in both places. I don't know. What do you like remember about like the sort of immigrantness of your home, if you will? Well, my parents are probably quite atypical Indians, yeah, Indian immigrants in the sense that we, so my my father, you know, if you ever ask my father where he was born, he will tell you United India. Uh, and that means he was born before the partition, he was born in 1940. Um, and, you know, seven years later, when India gained its independence, he, he was one of those families that um, you know, sadly had to do that awful journey because where they're from in India is the Punjab. And the Punjab was one of those places that had sort of a quite um, arbitrary line drawn through the middle of it. Half of it went into Pakistan, the other half uh, landed in India. And of course, then along cultural or rather religious sort of divides, you were asked to re- relocate to one side or the other. So um, my parents being Sikh, they moved their whole, and, and my father's family at the time, you know, moved their entire life across from the Pakistani side of Punjab, um, you know, left everything they owned and had, and were resettled on uh, the Indian side of Punjab. Um, and luckily, you know, they were resettled very well. Um, but, you know, that's that was the, the start of the journey, I suppose, for him. You know, during the 1960s, when, you know, probably actually after the Second World War, Britain was suffering a massive labour shortage, calling out to all of their colonies to have them, you know, fill their labour shortage. And, and that's sort of the wave that my father came in on to the UK. He, he arrived in 1963 to probably uh, what I would describe as quite a hostile um, United Kingdom, uh, a welcome at the time. You know, it wasn't the, the place it is today, which is quite inclusive. You know, um, you know, suffered a lot of um, racism when he first arrived. You know, some of the stories. I was always fascinated as a child when he told us the stories of, you know, um, what he did and, and and where he went and the sort of signs he saw up on doors outside of places. Which, you know, to be fair, is is not unique to Indians. You know, the, the Irish that lived in the UK at the time were, yeah, suffered quite a lot of racism as well. So that's how he arrived. He then, you know, like every immigrant, um, you know found the Indian community who gave him some support, put him on his feet, gave him his first job and, you know, essentially has just worked incredibly hard, you know, with my mother who later joined him. And, um, you know, we were born in the UK, my my siblings and I, and that's kind of his story. But, you know, as a result, I, I wonder whether it's as a result of this, but I've always had a great desire to know the world. And um, so, you know, aside from my, my parents' journey to the UK, you know, I've got my own I suppose, little journey in terms of moving around and, and, you know, quite recently became a French citizen. I'm very proud of. So, yeah. Congratulations. That's exciting. Actually, I think I might have it sitting around on my desk. I was very excited. I went and collected it the other day. Look, let me show you. Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm very delighted to have it. I always, whenever I'm at, I just came back from Italy yesterday, um, and I always love looking around and waiting online to go through customs at all the different passports. You know, everyone's got a different color, a different like crest on the front. It's, it's really, it's really cool. A lot of the Middle Eastern passports are beautiful, like these green, 
shades. I mean, I'm so used to kind of this like ugly dark blue of the U.S. I I love yeah. it. I'm proud of it, but it's you know. Yeah. Um, so, and, and what did your, uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, I know you you said your father came and it was obviously difficult. What was he able to do kind of work-wise when he did come? So, um, it's funny, it's, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, I've often asked my parents that, you know, what, what, what were you doing? What were your lives like in India? And I think my, my father would, would have been a teacher had he stayed in India, but obviously, you know, he left in the middle of his studies, did not complete those when he came to the UK because it was all about, you know, making life, making money. And so he largely worked in manufacturing, you know, in, in factories doing quite difficult jobs, um, essentially, um, to provide for us. And, you know, and quite frankly, he, you know, his, my older sister is um, a PhD doctorate um, who's done incredibly well for herself, my brother as well. So I think they did a, did a fine job with instilling the value of education and hard work in us. That's awesome. When you were younger, do you feel... Do you feel like that was uh, the case? I mean, I, you know, just knowing a lot of at least of my, my friends who are come from the Indian community, like there's there is, you know, there's a, a value of education, but there's also a quite active push towards education. I think for me, like the Russian or like Russian uh, or I, I should say former Soviet Jewish community in, in America is very similar. On Sunday mornings, I would go to math school when my friends were home, you know, watching cartoons and they were drilling you know, formulas that I hadn't even learned in regular school yet. Um, and, and, and obviously, I think that does imprint on something on you as, as a child. Did you have any of that? Absolutely not. So when I said they were atypical, they were atypical in the sense that they never, we never landed in a, um, we never landed in an Indian community. Actually, my brother, sister and I, we all went to Catholic school um, because it was the closest school to our home. We were obviously not, we, you know, we partook, we partook in mass and, you know, um, Catholic education, but we, didn't take communion, etc., um, and that was really down to my father wandering down to school, speaking to the headmaster, and, and sort of saying, "Look, this is the closest school to my home, and my I work shifts, and my wife is now working, and we want to ensure that our children are safe and can make it to school and back." And and it's you know I, I look fondly back on that time that you know our headmaster became a bit of an unpaid babysitter to the three of us, and um, you know he'd keep us in school. But you know in terms of encouraging. It, the Sandy Sandy Casey or Cassandra, as you called her earlier, she asked me this question shortly after I joined Newland Chase um, just about a year ago, and, and she said, "You know how you know I've got young children. How what did you your parents tell you? You know what did they instill in you that you you really you know you focused on your studies?" And I said, "Actually, my my parents are quite bright. Actually, they." I have no memory of them ever telling any one of us to do our homework, but they quietly um, made us understand that an education would be very important to us. And it was the one thing that nobody could ever take away from us. It was for us and us alone. And my father would quite often say things like, well, you know, if you don't want to study, that's absolutely, you can come and work in a factory like me, if that's what you would like to do. So there were very clever little messages that were positioned that made you think, oh, that doesn't sound like it's much fun, really, working shifts in a factory. And we, I mean, I think we just loved school, all of us. So it kind of came naturally. That's clever, I think. Yeah, <laughs> very clever. Because I, I, I think sometimes when parents push too much, and I don't have children of my own, but I do, I was a child at some point. I think all of us were. But yeah. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, I think all of us were kids at some point. I, you know, you kind of resent pushing of any sort, you know, when yeah. you're a kid. Uh, and it, anyone else could tell you that it's a great idea. But if your parents tell you, God forbid, you oh, know, no. it's like, right. So 
So it, it, it's actually really, it's, it's really, it's really cool. I will say though, that I think just the conversation I've had with just immigrants in general, uh, around the world in the U S you know, elsewhere, um, there's still, a, there's a fear that you come to this country and if you don't already have money somehow, right, that you're, you might work a kind of lower paying job, let's say, um, and you want to make sure your, your kids have better income. I mean, you say standard of life, standard of living, but often that translates into income, income opportunities. And so the push there is because I think a lot of parents understandably are worried that if they don't, the kids might just, you know, not go the route that the, the parents are hoping for. But, it, it, you know, it's a lot of confidence that your parents had in you and your siblings, and uh, which I think is really, is really cool. Um, so that, Not that's, to say they didn't, you know, didn't have their, you know, strange ways of sure. convincing us of, of the route we wanted to take. I remember my best friend in primary school, you know, randomly one day told me she wanted to be a nurse. I didn't even really understand what a nurse was, but I decided to go home and tell my father I wanted to be a nurse. And he, he very gently, uh, not so gently now that I understand what he's playing at, but, you know, discouraged me from this route in life by saying, really? Oh, well, that's lovely, dear. Do you want to clean up people's vomit when they're ill? Would you really like to wipe their bottom? I was thinking, no, it sounds awful. This, all of this sounds terrible. Why would I want to do it? And why does my friend want to do this? So I was quickly, <laughs> I was quickly put off a, a career in nursing. I, I uh, never knew that that's what it entails. And by the way, shout out to any, <laughs> any significantly more than that. And like, it's yeah, very yeah. It was reduced to possibly the worst possible elements right. of it. Right. That's and that's where the the, the the them being clever comes in. Um, that's awesome. So I, I want to kind of fast forward a little bit because I, I think you know just to kind of understand you know you, you ended up obviously not becoming a nurse or going into the medical profession. I suppose um, when you went to university, did you know what you wanted to do? I mean, you said you had a fascination with other you know, cultures or sort of traveling, knowing the world. Was that on your mind at all when you were kind of deciding your professional path? No, not. Not at all. And yeah, certainly when I went to university, I just continued a path that I had already been on um, probably since secondary school. So um, in the UK, you know, you're, you're quite quickly, I think, pushed down a specific path because you do A-levels and A-levels really determine sort of what you potentially can do at university. So I I just happened to be, you know, I had a secondary school that was incredible. It had some amazing language teachers um, and I you know, really enjoyed those classes. So um, I decided then for my A-levels to, to study um, French, German and, and English, but obviously it was English literature more than anything else. So by the time I completed those A-levels, you know, that it, for me it was, well, obviously French and German is what I'm going to study at university. And, and again, it was one of those things that um, I guess, you know, unlike, I think, parents who just do desperately want their children to do well, really kind of, and I think, you know, a lot of other Indian parents, and I know a lot of Indian parents who will, you know, strongly encourage their children down a medical route or, you know, be an engineer or, you know, one of these other professions. You know, my parents always said to me, you know, do what you love, because if you do what you love, then you're very likely to be successful. And, you know, I did. I absolutely loved studying languages. So, uh, yeah, I did a joint honours degree in, in French and German. Um, without really thinking at all about what that could lead to, if anything. Um, and yeah, at the end of it, discovered that perhaps it wasn't the most useful degree to do. Uh, <laughs> it's 
especially um, at that time in um, the UK when, you know, we had so many people um, who, could, who were trialing, well, you know, obviously European Union, there were a lot of, there was a lot of migration, free movement. And, you know, by the time I graduated, I was like, great. So I, I speak two European, well, in addition to English, I speak these two other European languages. Well, that's pretty common. Everybody does. That's how I finished my degree. And then as a result of this, um, in quite a um, random thought process, I then decided what would be the answer to this problem was to learn a more, more complicated slash rarer language that might be of use to me. And so I actually moved to Japan and I spent uh, two years um, on a program called the Japan Exchange Teaching Program, um, which is, you know, as it's a, it's a teaching program that you go into, um, in my case, English intensive schools, secondary schools, and you, know, you also work with the Board of Education to foster um, better relations and international relations with Japan. And it was amazing. I also studied Japan, Japanese during the, the time that I was there and, and passed a few exams. And yeah, it, it was probably one of the best experiences I've, I've ever, ever had in my life. But it was, I guess, when I look back at it now, it was absolute um, youth and foolishness because you know, I didn't speak a word of Japanese, didn't know a single person there. Just thought, oh, well, yes, that seems like a good idea. I'll just go and do this. How uh, how was your Japanese after you finished those two years? So it was. I mean, I could absolutely live my life there, get about, and do everything I needed to. I actually came when I returned. I actually ended up working for a Japanese trading company, and um, who put me on site at Toyota, and they hired me primarily um, because they needed, as they said, it was in a, it was in a sales engineer role. Not what I applied for. Again, a bit of a haphazard incident in my life where I went for a temping role and it turned into a full-time job offer where they said, look, you know, you speak French and we need somebody on site at, at Toyota France. So, you know, how about, how about we give you this other job and we give you a car and we give you a phone and you train here and then you go over there. And I was like, well, this sounds fabulous. Why would I not do it? So, yeah, I, um, I mean, it's probably the best part of 15 years I haven't properly used it. Um, but it's there somewhere, as as you probably know, languages, you know, they when you use them again, they come back. Yeah. Wow. So you so your first kind of other than the teaching opportunity, which, of course, is a full time job, but your sort of corporate first corporate or, or working for an employer yeah. type of job was was using two languages that you learned, not even your primary English language. Yeah, indeed. Wow. <laughs> and so, I mean, if you ask me, well, first of all, you must, you probably know coming from the U.S., we, you know, yes, we study other languages, but not nearly to the extent of, of folks who are in the, in the European Union, just because you sort of need multiple languages to get by professionally. Whereas here, it's like, well, everyone sort of speaks English, which I, you know, I studied Spanish for a very long time. I'm decent at it. I can also live there and get by, but I'm by no means, you know, professionally fluent. So I, I, I always respect and admire people who work whose work requires them to use learned yeah. languages because to me that is just unbelievably impressive so that's super cool um i i'm just curious before i ask my next question which of those languages do you i'm assuming french i guess because you just recently became a french citizen and you're which is that of, like is your, which of them do i speak the best best today yeah yeah um so my first language was Punjabi. So mm -hmm. before I even went to school or nursery, obviously, I that was the language I spoke. So it would probably be between French and, and Punjabi. Um, just 
Um, and I, I'd say probably French has the edge because I studied it, whereas Punjabi, you just grow up and you live in the environment you live in. So I often say to my parents, it's like, yeah, it's 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 great until, you know, if I, so I, I went on a trip with my parents, you know, several, maybe five, six years ago to India, and it was during the Indian elections at the time the TV was on all the time. So, oh, those are words I have never heard in my life because I don't have a political conversation with my parents. It's kind of like right. pass, pass the bread or something right. like that. Make your bed. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so that kind of complex vocabulary I have in the French language, but probably don't in Punjabi. Fascinating. I'm kind of the same in Russian, but I've been actively better at that or trying to get better at that by reading more and listening to the news more, yeah. um, especially. Um, that's cool. So, so you worked at Toyota. I'm curious. So now you've you've clearly lived around the world. I mean, you lived in Japan. Now you lived on site, uh, or right? You were you living in well, France for? Well, so as part of my degree, I lived um, joint honors degree. I lived a I lived for uh, yeah, four months in Germany in Dortmund, which I describe um, as the Birmingham of Germany, an industrial sort of city, huge, you know, lovely, great people but not particularly pretty. And then I went from there to probably one of the most beautiful places, I think in France, um, Strasbourg, on the French-German border. Um, and so that was my, my year abroad. And then, yeah, after I graduated, I lived in, in, in Japan. And then that first job took me back to France, but the north of France, I was living in Lille. Mm -hmm. so, so, so you've sort of started to fulfill this idea of, of, of having this like worldly career. Um, how did you then transition from that to your first job in the sort of global mobility immigration space? Because you've clearly, you've obviously made a really amazing career out of that over the past decade or so. But before that, you, I mean, you could have gone into a global ops role. I mean, you could have kind of done a lot of different things, given the skills, the language skills and the experience you had. What sort of drew you to that first job? And can you talk a little bit about that transition and maybe that first role? So it's not going to be as um, lofty, perhaps, as you might imagine. So it turns out, after I am now working as a sales engineer, that I, I'm not particularly passionate about engineering. <laughs> Having, uh, as part of the, the year and a half that I did it, even being sent to Nagoya, so sort of Toyota City, to have some sort of engineering education, I was like, I really, I can't, I cannot spend my life doing this. You know, even if I can learn it, I don't enjoy it. Um, and, uh, you know, happened to be just sort of thinking about, hey, what, what else could I, I could do? Joined some recruitment agencies at the time, kind of all the ones that had any um, language aspect to them. So there's some very um, specialised agencies that deal with linguists and came across a teeny tiny ad that I had no understanding of what the actual job was, but it said something along the lines of languages are desirable. Hmm. So on the basis of said uh, advertisement, I decided to apply for the job. And that was that job turned out to be um, my first job in mobility or in immigration um, with Emigra. They had just opened up their first, well, they'd, yeah, their international offices, they'd opened, I think, Hong Kong, a few months prior and London was the one shortly after that. Um, and yeah, I was one of the very first employees in London. Wow. And so at that time, was Emigra a, a fairly small company? Tiny, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, I mean, uh, it had its Houston office, um, which probably was reasonably sizable, but, but outside of that, it had a very small 
small presence in Hong Kong. And yeah, at the time that I joined Emira, they had um, a wonderful woman called Hilary Sloan, um, who had transferred from Houston to sort of set it up and, and hire and get people trained. And she hired somebody who I now work with again, uh, another wonderful woman who I knew at the time was Marianne Chapman, now Marianne Fry. And, and I was then the second hire um, wow. in that office. So yeah, it was a very, very small, small office. Can you? You, they need to grow, right? Right. And, and now that I think about it from an immigration standpoint, um, this person who came in from Houston came probably on some sort of intra-company transfer to set up the office, yeah. you know? Um, so can you talk a little bit about that job? Because you clearly did not yeah. hate it and you've stayed no, in the industry. Like so like, yeah. what what about it? You know, okay, it said language is preferred. What happened? Like, what did you actually do? So I started in global immigration. And what I loved about that is it, it it does have it was so international so you know it really was you learned about customer service you learned how to communicate with people i like people like you know, as you've seen i like to talk so you know it was really kind of playing to the things that i enjoy doing interacting with people i like writing i like you know problem solving and, and then working with an international network of, of of partners that really helped us decipher how we could get you know somebody from a to b and so, yeah, I, I just re I remember working with um, a partner, particularly this this woman comes to mind because she was an absolute genius at French immigration law, but she was of certain age and it was you could not send her an email. If you you if you wanted a question answered, you had to call her or you had to send a fax. Those were the only two methods of communication. Um, and this was, you know, I'm old, but, you know, this was in 2003, 2004. So, um, you know, it was like, really, this is how we have to communicate to get an answer to this question. But yeah, it was just it was just the group of, I suppose, people that I worked with at the time um, and, you know, the partners largely that we interacted with that made it feel. Yeah, it was just a really rewarding job. You were helping people and, you know, I was enjoying getting to know people around the world. Did you end up using your language skills, you know, to talk to people who are trying yeah. to move from all over? Yeah. I, I mean, I always tend to let the other person decide. Um, and I do this because when I was learning French and German, nothing infuriated me more <laughs> than, um, you know, wandering into a place and somebody, you know, finding out your English and deciding that they wanted to learn. They wanted to practice their English. I think, no, I came here to learn German. Speak to me in German. I don't want to practice English. So I do tend to let other people decide, um, you know, if it's one of the languages I speak, whether they want to speak to me in that language or not. That's actually um, interesting. Do you ask them what's better, like what language you prefer or how do you? No, I, I let them start. And then usually during the course of the conversation, you know, at some point it will, it will, you know, come out. And if they switch, I'm mm -hmm. happy for them to switch. And if they don't, I'm happy to carry on in English. I have a, um, actually our EVP um, at Newton Chase, um, Flon Frappoli, who is who is French, but he's like the least French person in the world. I, mean, I don't think I've ever exchanged a word with Flon in French ever. Hmm. And because uh, he's just, in, you know, he's he's also had an international career and he's never, ever, um, yeah. I, 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 I'd almost be shocked to hear him speak French. I've really never seen it happen. That's so, that's so interesting. I feel like there's almost an art form there of figuring out 
what the best language is to talk to somebody when you, especially when you have so many languages at your disposal in a very proficient way. You obviously, you can always default to your kind of, you know, native language that you grew up speaking because that's probably the easiest. But uh, to your point, if you're trying to talk about past the salt, you know, at the dinner table, Punjabi would be easy. But if you're trying to, you know, have uh, a conversation yeah, about conversation, yeah, 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 yeah. you're going to start using English words in that. In those right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's so cool. So I, I want to kind of I want to you know move ahead a little bit because I, I know that your journey, you know, you, you worked at Emigraf for some years and then you moved on. You worked at some other uh, organizations overseeing or in the immigration space and you ended up and then Emigra was was acquired right by. Mm-hmm. CIBT Newland Chase, and then sort of you ended up back there now. So it's kind of cool that you came full circle. But before we get to that, I'm just curious. So we don't have to go through, of course, every job you've done and all that. <laughs> but, but I'm curious, sort of, how did your like when you reflect back a little bit on the pro, on the progression of your career from that first job where you were yes leveraging languages, but you're now going into this absolutely new field. I think from your perspective, um, you know, to, to end up ending up where you are today sort of like, what do you think some of the things you've taken away from the different organizations you worked at? Uh, what do you think those things are that have been important to you and have sort of kept you in the industry? And well, I mean, I, I think I was very lucky to land Emigra at the time I did, because, you know, I mentioned earlier, you know, you, you join at that time, and then you have, you know, you have so many opportunities ahead of you, because as they grow, they need to promote and, and encourage people to take greater responsibility. Um, and I think from my time then, I was there for seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it wasn't an insignificant amount of time. It was, you know, really helping that expansion. So they went from two international offices when I started to by the time I'd left, God, they probably had, I was responsible for pretty much all of their European offices. Um, so yeah, they probably worldwide probably had 10, 12 offices by that stage, by the time I left. Um, and, and yeah, that, that, you know, what, what I learned from that time at Emigra more than anything is, you know, it, it, I have no delusions of grandeur. I don't think it's because I'm better than anybody else or I'm brighter than anybody else. I was in the right place at the right time and I was prepared to roll up my sleeves and work hard. And, you know, I have memories of when I actually was transferred to Switzerland with Emigra to open up their Swiss office, kind of thinking, I don't even, like, I, I, I was setting up the office, I had to do everything, you know, when you have to wear every cap, you, you're the IT person, you're you know, you're, you're the manager, you're also, you know, taking deliveries, you're, do, you're literally doing everything, kind of crawling around on the floor underneath the desk, trying to make computers work, thinking, wow, like, why am I doing this? I wouldn't even do this at home. I'd make my husband do this for me. But it, it is, like, is about throwing yourself into something, however scary it may be, and just, you know, trying hard, really. So, and it was a great foundation. I, I think Emigra had probably uh, one of the best training induction trainings I've, I've witnessed in, in all of my jobs, really. Really solid foundation to being able to be successful in every job thereafter. And um, so, yeah, that's how I ended up in Switzerland. Um, and after seven years, I felt like I'd done, you know, I kind of, I'd become that person where the, the company's collective memory, I suppose, where people would say, oh, if, if, if you can't find anybody else to answer the question, then, uh, then ask Vampreet. So I thought it was probably time to move on, <laughs> vacate my seat at the table. Quite accidentally, I met, uh, yeah, CEO of um, one of Switzerland's largest um, uh, providers of relocation solutions, and and they, I had, they had been my client, had been selling them immigration services, and so I, um, m- you know, met the CEO at some networking event, and and he convinced me that 
he wanted to insource rather than outsource immigration and could I come along and set up an immigration department and and uh, and also join their executive management team and take over the destination service side of the business. So that for me was like, wow, that'll be something new, something more than just immigration. It's a wider mobility industry. You know, the company at the time is called Pack and Pex and also had a, a large household goods arm, temporary, uh, temporary living, etc. So it was like my first induction into the wider world of mobility. Um, and that was, again, it was, I suppose, the learning of, of new things, you know. Mm-hmm. Honestly, had I, I genuinely had no idea what destination services were before I was given sort of eight destination service offices in Switzerland. I was like, you know, and I, I remember the lovely guy who, um, who reported into me, who was trying to explain it to me. I was like, so what do you do exactly? How do you do it? How does this work? What, you get in cars, you drive people around, you show them houses? Um, but again, you know, what I took away from that um, role was, um, you know, obviously I met some amazing people um, in, in Switzerland. I've been living in Switzerland for several years before that, but they became, I think it was with Emigrat, that was the job that I, I guess, I truly got to know Switzerland, fell in love with Switzerland. And, you know, the organisation itself, if you've ever worked, if you know any Swiss Germans, it's the most direct um, cultural environment that you can work in and yeah I, I my CEO was you know he was two point and he you know he he kept certainly the Brits in his business um two point you know he'd often say can you stop with this waffling what is it what is it you're trying to tell me stop you know pussyfooting around with all these words what is it you want me to do or what is it that you want so yeah no again great learning experience and of course for me back again in an environment where I could use my languages, both of them. And yeah, it was great. But again, got to a point where I was like, mm, I've kind of, my job here is done. There are all these amazing people who who should have an opportunity to do my job and, and I probably need to move along. And so I decided to quit my job without a job. I decided I'd worked very, very hard for a very long time and deserved a break. And I took six months off. Um, and, and well, I intended to take six months off. Uh, I ended up, I think, I'm taking, including a move from Switzerland back to London, I ended up taking probably about five months off um, because um, uh, now a very, very good friend, I'd also, I'd already known her from the industry for some time. She was one of my clients at Pike and Becks and, and called me and as soon as she was told that I was leaving and, and offered me a job immediately after I was decided I was going to take my, my break, I politely told her that that was not going to happen because I wanted to take my break. But, you know, she could call me back in six months if she wanted to. Um, so she periodically called back. Um, and, yeah, she got me, I guess, at that five-month stage and I agreed to, to to move back to the United Kingdom. And, you know, part of that was also for, for my parents. They're not getting any younger and I wanted to be a little bit closer to home. And, and that's when I um, joined, um, you know, BGRS, Relocation Management Company. And, again, it was, you know, just learning another side of this wonderful industry that we work in called mobility. And I think for me, you know, I'll only ever be in any job for as long as I'm learning something and for as long as I feel like I'm adding value. Um, And, you know, that typically tends to be around the seven year mark. Um, But, you know, if, if if my job there is done sooner, then, you know, it wouldn't frighten me to move on. You know, a, a couple of things that struck me there. The first one is that when you're when you moved uh, to uh, pack pack a plex, yeah, pack and pecs, yeah, pack and pecs, pack and pecs. It was also 
It was called Network Relocation. It was another one of those companies that rebranded. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> That's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, cool mouthful. I mean, if, if yeah. I'm being honest, uh, but, but, <laughs> but would be import export because that was the name of the moving side of it. That's very oh, pack That'd import export pack. And yeah. pack. Okay. And also that would be, if, 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 if you could use it on Scrabble, that would be a very, <laughs> a very expensive word uh, or not expensive, a very, uh, yeah. You know, that, anyway. Um, so no, but, but the thing that I wanted to say was the idea as, so, you know, I practiced immigration law and I I studied it and I was only an immigration lawyer for about a year and a half for less than two years, but I, I, I got into the industry as an intern and that was my whole life in law school. So I feel like I had been in the space for much longer, even before I got my first job. Um, you really tend to, especially if you're on the legal side, but probably really in any, in any portion of the immigration side that the visa, the immigration process is the only, it's the most important thing. And, and it is, I mean, without a visa, you can't relocate. I mean, you need the entry, you know, but, you know, as a lawyer, even in a law firm setting, I think you're not typically brought into even the idea of the full mobility process, you know, and, and a lot of people go into the immigration space thinking, I love people, I love helping people, I help them move. But the reality is, and it makes sense, it's part of the, it's just part of the job. You get their visa, you send them, you know, the approval, whatever it might be. And then you say, great, so I'll talk to you in three years when there's a renewal or let me know when you have. And and the reality is for that person, things have just begun. And I think as an immigration professional, even if you're just a lawyer or paralegal or whoever in an immigration process, uh, in, a, in an immigration firm, it's good to just be aware of the fact that now there's so much more that this individual, they actually they have to physically move. Right? They have to move their stuff. If they have a family, they have to figure out what their spouse might be doing. If they have kids, where are they going to go to school? If they have pets, you got to move your pet. You yeah. know, if you lived in a certain home, what kind of a home or neighborhood do you want to, or or will you live in in your you know in a new destination? And then once you're there, how do you acclimate and all these things? Get a credit card. How do you get a car loan? How do you, you know all these things? And so, I think it's just interesting to know. My philosophy, frankly, is that. You know, and, and again, I say this to my immigration law, you know, law firm folks out there who may be listening. I think it's good for immigration lawyers to just be aware of this and potentially even have connections to, you know, different oh, services yeah. and things like that. You know, and so we'll, we'll get in a minute to, you know, into like what Newland Chase does and, you know, broadly, and then we'll talk about the technology. But just generally, if you're a smaller immigration firm, you can at least still have some resources available to your clients and say, hey, when you when you move here, Here's some ways that you can, um, you know, figure out how to get a credit card or get a phone number or things like that. I just think it's good for folks to, to know that it, it really opened my eyes when I stepped out of the just immigration bubble and realized that there's so much more. So I just think that's a really interesting insight and really cool that you were able to actually work in both, right? You did the immigration side and then you kind of the, the broader mobility, destination services, relocation management, et cetera. So I, I just wanted to mention that because I just... It, that was a pivotal moment for me in my career as well to learn that there was so much more, and in fact, immigration was just the beginning. And and I think you know, especially people who have you know been an immigration consultant, for example, for a certain amount of time, there is a tendency to forget how emotive that process can be and why you know people sometimes go, well, I don't understand why this person's getting so angry because it's you know three days delayed. But for that person, that means okay, now my household goods potentially cannot be shipped. 
or can't be offloaded or whatever, you know, whatever else is happening in their relocation journey. Immigration is absolutely the cornerstone of that. Until that is sorted out, nothing else can happen and people's lives are in limbo. That's right. That's right. Yep. And it is a human. And a lot of people go into this industry because they love working with people. But when you when you work on an immigration case after immigration case, you can't possibly Im- empathize fully with everyone. It would drive you crazy. You have to separate yourself a little bit and yeah. do the work, you know, mechanically. But then when you do that, you know, you sort of start to forget about what people it's, are feeling. You know, it's a terrible thing to say, but I think um, unless you're one of those exceptional people who who really are, um, you know, deeply empathetic, I think the role does have a bit of a shelf life. You know, to be able to demonstrate the empathy, you know, particularly for certain nationalities. I think people, you know, again, you know, people with a, a nice um, Western passport where you can go everywhere pretty much visa free. You know, you forget how important it is to, to those uh, visa nationals. You know, how you, you know, I remember the first time I had to communicate a refusal to somebody and the person burst out crying. And I was like, wow, it's not that bad. We'll just, you know, reapply, I thought in my mind. And that was the first realization I had that if, for this person, this was, you know, this was their whole life. If they didn't get this extended, it was going to be devastating for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're we're lucky. I mean, I, I feel, I feel very grateful that my family moved here and and that I've, you know, I, I've had the opportunities I've had and and that I have the passport that I have. Quite honestly, yeah. I do wish I can go to Cuba more easily. Just, but you know, yeah. it's, there's there's a few places, but. So let's talk about what you do now. So I know you came back to Newland Chase course in uh, in different capacity than what you were doing at yeah. Emigra, of course, and, and prior. Can you talk a little bit about what you do and sort of what Newland Chase does as a company? And, and part of this is also educating me because I know it's yeah. a large organization. You have a lot of different service providers and professionals um, in UK and Canada, all over the world. There's also the CIBT arm which is uh, has has done a, gone through a lot of acquisitions and and so mm-hmm. I also have been trying to wrap my head around what the organization does. Maybe there's no quick and dirty, you know, version oh, of it. It's actually very very simple. It does the full end to end spectrum of visa and immigration services, including document services, so passports, mm-hmm. legalizations, anything that you need in that department. But you know, in it, you know, in a quick and dirty explanation kind of way, that that is what the organization does. Um, and and within that, you know, um, there are you know many services, many many products, um, and you know you know when we think about the technology part of it. So I you know I mentioned, or rather you mentioned for me that I'm responsible for global strategy and services and products at Newland Chase. You know some of those product products and services are are the ones you would expect any immigration firm to deliver. You know somebody needs a a business visa to to go from the UK to China. You know we'll manage that. Somebody else needs um, a document legalized, we'll do that. Somebody else will, you know, they're, they're going on a traditional assignment and need a um, work and residence permit. And, and that's, you know, that's what, what we do. And, and we try like, everything. So you say it's a large organization. And I think when we, um, we had a really brief chat and, and before um, today and, you know, our, our line didn't work very well. But I think I started a sentence, something along the lines of, you know, it is a big organization, but, and then we cut off. And the end of that sentence was, in terms of numbers and size, yes, it's a large organization, but it actually has a very small organization feel about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean that in the warmest possible way, in the sense that 
you know, I, I've worked for the, the behemoths um, when I worked for a, a relocation management company, and it has it has its own um, benefits and, and good things about it. But what, I, what I've learned about myself over the course of all the jobs I've had is that I love working in, in a, that small company field because you're so agile. Things get done quickly. Decisions get made done quickly. There's so much more innovation. And, you know, that's kind of brought us to, to you know, the technology products that we've developed. You know, Imi Smart was some, it was like a speck of an idea that came off the back of a prospect mentioning a need. And, you know, you know, before my time, but, you know, the company went back and said, oh, you know, that prospect asked for something that would help them, A, have greater visibility over both the visa and the immigration sides of their business, because at the moment they don't really have that visibility uh, of their entire uh, mobile population. And also, like, you know, we, we're concerned that we don't really know whether people are traveling um, compliantly. So that was sort of that, that little crumb that, you know, fed fed an enormous you know now an amazing product which we i would call it a talent mobility portal so it's not just a pre-travel assessment you know most of our clients when and prospects when they've come to us and started talking to us about their needs they're looking for a, a travel compliance assessment either something they want to build um into their travel approval workflow or they just simply want to you know make sure that you know they know where all their people are and and, and that they are traveling um compliantly but you know it, it does a lot more than that it is um you know has amazing suite of management information and um, you know reporting dashboard analytics that help organizations manage you know all sorts of things um you know it's a lot of intelligence around spend you know where are they spending their money how could they um you know reduce their spend um where is their risk where are their compliance gaps how do they close them how do they identify potential tax and social security um, risks? So there's a lot more to it than just pre-travel approval. Um, and, and again, from that, you know, we've evolved the product to the extent, you know, I think everything at Newland Chase is about the customer experience. And, you know, and that's every product and service we have, but particularly in technology, it, it is around how do we make the delivery of our core services which will always remain those visa document and, and immigration services how do we make this a seamless experience for our clients and customers and so all the developments of the product really come from we have a vision we, we obviously have a product roadmap like every other provider out there but we listen to our clients and customers and our prospects and you know we're agile enough to to sort of make that happen you know, it's a fully owned proprietary tool. So um, luckily, you know, we have some incredibly bright people, one of which you've pointed out is on this call. So I have to give a massive shout out to Katia, Katia who is um, Senior Product Manager at Newland Chase. And, you know, Amy Smart really is, you know, the vision um, and the evolution of this particular product over the last 12 months is a you know, testament to, to her hard work and um, her tenacity in making sure it delivers the best, um, not just to our existing clients, but you know, it is in my old job where I was responsible for global supply chain. And of course, I'm biased, but I looked at a lot of these kinds of products, a lot of them. And I would say it's probably one of the most robust um, tools out there. You know, started off of, as a visa immigration, then into posted worker, A1 sort of compliance. And, and now has this entire suite of, um, you know, tax functionality that can be used. Uh, and, you know, because of the CIBT visas, um, you know, strength and privileged place in the market and relationships with travel management companies, 
We've also, you know, integrated a kind of entire vendor ecosystem. You know, our industry is not good, has never been good, irrespective of whether you're in immigration, relocation, household goods, wherever you sit in the mobility industry, we're not great with technology. And I think it is great to, you know, see now the industry realising that and realising that, you know, for the customer to have a great experience, we cannot be asking them for the same information five, six, seven times across the, the life of their mobility journey. So, you know, being able to, you know, integrate, you know, that travel um, or compliance assessment into the, the travel workflow is, you know, it, it definitely makes that entire experience a lot more seamless for the end client. Now, does Amy Smart apply, you know, this sort of like tax and compliance and all that logic in certain parts of the, certain countries? Because one of the, or, or is it global or, you know, is it that you... 100 countries worldwide. So, you know, to all intents and purposes for the mobility industry where people regularly move to, it is, it, it's a global tool. And yeah, all of the logic, so our in-house experts are, are responsible for the knowledge that flows through into driving those assessment results. And we, you know, we've, again, thought long and hard from a customer client perspective of like, you know what, if they buy a tool like this, they want, they want an automated output to whatever their question is. Um, you know, and if that question, if you're a travel manager or a, you know, general business traveler, you want to know, do I need a visa? Do I not need a visa? And if I do need one, what do I have to do? And how do I click to get it? You know, it, it is really around, um, yeah, making it as seamless as, as possible from that perspective. Yeah, because one of the things I always thought was really fascinating is once you start going down the rabbit hole of all the data that you need and all the ancillary processes within the mobility you know, journey of an individual. Now you start touching on tax and you start touching on family members and you start touching on, you know, different uh, compliance requirements if you're on a temporary work visa. And then there's the immigration side and all this. And and so, and, and it's, and it's, it feels so daunting. I mean, it's, there's so oh, much to it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, when you think what we, you know, uh, I say we, but you know, anybody that has this sort of um, technology, to take incredibly complex, you know, immigration, visa immigration, posted worker laws, you know, and and use that logic to build or rather turn that complex knowledge into algorithms that will drive an automated output that will tell you, okay, based on your on your profile, you're you you're this nationality, you hold these documents, you're going from this place to that place, we need to consider that you're doing XYZ. And then to be able to spit out an automated assessment, and you know, our commitment to our to our clients is that eighty percent of the time they will get an instantaneous response. It is complex though, so there's always going to be you know that twenty percent that will fall out where you need a human being. And we, you know, it is. It's all about enabling the experience, not removing the human touch. And um, mm -hmm. where they you know, can get an automated assessment, they will get it most of the time. But you know, if they need that you know, additional discussion and um, hand-holding consultation then you know absolutely our, our, our experts will provide that too i think that's so important because there's always in the legal tech discussion generally and even specifically in, in our industry there's this idea that once you introduce technology you eradicate the need for a human being and and most people in the technology space are saying that's not true it's never going to be true 
you're you're automating parts of the journey. If you can automate more of it, well, it you're going to be able to spend more time not worrying about the administrative or repetitive steps of the process, but really you know focus and key in on and spend the right required amount of time on the. 20% or whatever it might be where they need a human touch that because yeah. otherwise you get the opposite side where you have, you know, like you go to the doctor's office, the doctor sees you for five minutes. Yeah. yeah. I mean, on less than 10 minutes, right. You're in and out of that office. And I, I agree. I think it is, it is all about enabling the experience, but not, you know, let the humans focus on the bits that matter, like the empathy that we talked about earlier to be able to pick up the phone and reassure somebody when something has been processing for longer than they thought it would be. But you know, and you know, if if you're a company today that isn't investing in technology, then the reality is you're going to become probably extinct extinct in the not too distant future. But it is not the be all and end all. It is the ways. You know, it's it's a way to to the means. You know, the means of delivering something um, that is meaningful to another human being. I'll never forget when I was um, when I was practicing. I uh, I, I had. In a client, uh, it was the company was a client, but it was an individual whose visa wasn't sure something about his H one B visa, and I remember I spent, I think an hour, maybe forty five minutes on the phone with this person, and not once during that time did I personally think to myself, oh, I got to, you know, I didn't rush this person off the phone, um, and and I just I remember thinking like, wow, and he and they felt better after the call. I, I couldn't do anything because I'm not the government. But what I could do was make the person feel better about yeah. their options if this didn't work out, et cetera. And, and I was just thinking, I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I'm going to be here till seven today because I just got off the phone. And I, I, I think what I just did was very valuable to the experience yeah. of working with the law firm. But I now have to be here because I still have this other paperwork and whatnot. Actually, no, a lot of times in immigration law, no, I mean, this is a really wonderful thing about immigration law and why I think it's so ripe for more technology. And that's why I push this conversation so much. We immigration lawyers in the US and I think probably around the world tend to, I think, bill flat fee, which means there should be an incentive to automate as much as you can and focus your human hours on the things that A, can't be automated, and then B, shouldn't be automated, right? Like yeah. the conversation with a stressed out, you know, uh, um, assignee or, or, you know, Im potential immigrant. Um, and, and yeah, I just, I just remember that moment where I was like, I wish I could just go home now because I feel like I just did my job. I can't got off the phone with somebody who's happy, but I have this paperwork and stuff. And I think that's what, you know, I, it seems like, you know, ME Smart focuses on, and I think that's where the immigration industry should focus, um, is how do we build more technology and integrate more tools into the workflow to automate the administrative, the paperwork, the repetitive stuff, and have the time and the mental energy, frankly, as providers to talk to our clients and solve their problems. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing. I think everybody, we've got to a point in time, in, in, irrespective of where you work, where you just kind of send emails to each other all the time. People don't even tell. Like, if my phone rings, I'm like, what, what is that? <laughs> my phone rang. You know, you know, even, you know, obviously my personal phone rings sometimes, but if my work phone rings, I'm stunned. I'm like, somebody actually got bothered to pick up a telephone. Yeah. Do you think it's an emergency immediately? Uh, well, it depends where the call's coming in from, right. yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, growing up as an immigrant, I don't know whether you had this in your family, if there was a phone call in the middle of the night, it was always bad news. Yeah. You know, if 
because it was probably somebody calling from the other side of the world and it, it wasn't going to be good. So, no, I don't I don't typically always panic. But, yeah, depending depending on how how repeatedly I may get a phone call from my mother, I then begin to think, well, maybe this is important. Maybe I do need to get off this call and, and call her back. Right. That's true. Yeah. And and th- there's another a whole nother conversation around how technology in the workplace, forget about the client facing side, but as the provider, um, when you can rely on technology to do more of your work, you can potentially have a more flexible lifestyle. You can take an hour during the day and have an important phone call and not feel like you're just disrupting your entire you know, work process. So th- th- this is awesome. And I, I think, you know, my, I'm, if you have a few more minutes, I'd love to just ask a couple more questions. From a, a technology perspective, you know, like you said, it's a proprietary tool. Newland Chase has built it, owns it, runs it, s- supplies it to, um, you know, your clients. Do you have any integration? I mean, is there any opportunity or thought around like a large organization building an internal tool still can't build everything, or yeah. if you can, it'll take forever. What are your thoughts on, um, you know, for whatever from whatever you can share, uh, even a, 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 a tool like ImmiSmart mm-hmm. connecting to other tools, be they immigration specific, or maybe something like a, a, a Calendly, you know, like a calendar tool that you don't no, have absolutely. to build. No, and, and um I think it's a necessity. Um, you know, in the smarter side, I think generally in in the mobility space, you know, you know, it goes back to that question of, you know, how do we make the experience for the actual user a pleasant one and, and the service, you know, a as seamless as possible. I, so we, you know, it, it's the data flow in my view. It, it is the the ensuring that nobody's asked at any point, you know, whether it's the the provider, whether it's the actual user, um, consumer of the service, they shouldn't have to do, you know, there's not these all of this redundant work of re-inputting. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the way we we approach it at Newland Chase is, is really through integrations, API, connectivity, two-way data flow. Um, you know, we have that with our, with our customers. And, you know, again, going back to, um, you know, CIBT, you know, we have those very privileged, relationships with travel management companies so that's most companies have a travel travel management company helping with you know at least before the pandemic there are tens of thousands of travelers you know booking their flights booking their hotels and you know as part of that you know they need visas so having that flow of information that potentially starts in you know in the customer's hr system or whatever internal system they may have at the company you know either going to the travel management company and then to us or coming to us and then going to the travel management company, whichever way it needs to be configured. You know, we're, we're firm believers in, you know, having that integrated ecosystem. Mm. So, so the idea would be that if you're working with a client, you, there are capabilities or, or opportunities to connect with other tools that they're Absolutely. using so that they don't have to manually move data from one place to another. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It, it is very easily configurable to, to connect into to other, other systems. How do you feel about because and I ask this because of the precedents that uh, uh, that CIBT I guess has set maybe for the organization through acquisitions. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that I that it doesn't happen often in the industry, and one thing that I, I think is regrettable is that a um, you know acquisitions I think give people an incentive to build and mm-hmm. to tinker and to create uh, because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's not easy to just start a company from scratch. 
Um, and and so and I think it's it's great that there are some larger organizations at least that are willing to explore that and and you know make acquisitions. That being said, none of this information is ever public. This isn't like Google acquiring somebody for you know five hundred million dollars. It makes the news. It's on their public. Uh, you know these are obviously smaller companies. We're a smaller industry, et cetera. Um, but I think the fact that it exists is is still great. Do you feel you know? Do you feel that organizations like yours and others should be encouraging, let's say, startups to come into this world? Or you know, I don't know. How do you feel about it? how do you feel about the whole startup acquisition side? So I, I think, and I, you know, irrespective of which business you're in, there's room for everybody to bring the best of what they can offer to the market, right? And then the market will choose. So I, I've always thought there's, you know, competition actually makes us better and you know makes us think more about you know the decisions we're making and absolutely i think you know having startups in this space especially because i think i, I do think Newman chase crbt are very unique in this because of all the acquisitions they have made over the years they've had to think about meaningfully about how do we make these pieces fit together what works what doesn't work but you know if that if organizations haven't sort of grown in that way you tend to end up with quite a, a a stale kind of this is the way we always did it and this is the way it's going to happen so you know having those new players out there and you know having a passion to do something differently you know and ben ben Sukir is probably you know the best example of this he's always trying to shake things up he was like just because this is the way it's always been done doesn't mean this is the way it should always be done and you know and that i think you know just helps everyone really I agree with you 100%. I mean, part of the reason for the show was to show show and highlight and showcase the different companies that are, are in the technology space. Of course, some of them are organizations like, you know, Nula Chase, CIBT, that are now a large organization there. You're kind of a conglomerate of some small companies, some purely homegrown, everything put together. But there are, of course, a lot of just sort of discrete distinct small organizations out there doing different things in the industry. I think we have to highlight that and we have to showcase it. And I think we have to um, continue to promote it because innovation can't just come from within. It can, but you need players to come in and do something different, maybe who were not even in the industry and say, hey, I came from electric cars and we did X really, really well. Why don't we do Y in this industry the same way? Exactly. And if you want to build everything from scratch, it's always going to take you significantly longer. And by the time you've built it, it's probably obsolete. So, you know, uh, in my organization, we do that through acquisition, you know, recently acquired Basilio, which is a, a, a tech company that to help us on our journey to, um, you know, to enhance um, all of the offerings we have and all the things that we want to do in the tech space. So, yeah, I definitely strongly encourage, you know, this industry needs help when it comes to tech. Let's just put it that way. And the more the more people we have in it helping us along, the better it will be for all of us. What do you think, um, just as one of my final questions, what do you think is sort of the future of technology in the industry? Um, you know, there's, there's always been, case management has always been around it. And obviously, um, Visa kind of... Uh, inc- I don't know what you would even call it, but sort of travel visa, business visa... Uh, inquiry kind of tools have been around. Um, but I think there are probably still a lot 
that we maybe don't even think about that can be automated? Or I don't know, where do you think the industry is going when, in the tech side of things? I, you know, we're slow movers in mobility, but I think over the last couple of years, that penny has dropped. And, you know, even in my old organization, um, you know, much larger, you know, it, it, the focus really was on, okay, well, what can we take away from our, you know, incredibly talented consultants? That's not really them. You know, it's an administrative function that could be done, um, you know, by a bot, quite frankly, uh, expense processing based on a policy, for example. That's what the policy says, is expense approved or not? Why does a human being have to do that? You know, that can very easily be automated. So, you know, I think there, I think it, it's a natural evolution of things that probably has started much later in this industry than it has in in many others. But I will say that this industry, in my view, and there may be many others that um, disagree with me, just the nature of it is it means that you cannot take away the human. Right. The human element is critical. You know, it, the technology is not the be all and the end all. Um, it is a means to an end, which is what we said earlier you know let the human beings focus on the areas that matter that add value that deliver you know um things that technology cannot you know helping that person through uh, a difficult situation because they've had uh, a a rejection when they didn't expect it um you know current crisis um in the ukraine you know this industry has it has has a wonderful um i suppose sense of community about it more so than many other industries and you know no technology can replace the warmth of and the immediate action of human beings reaching you know in our organization this this weekend we have people volunteering um to to help um you know ukrainians who want to come to the uk but don't understand the weird and wonderful legislation our country has put together you know they they do this day in day out and they're giving of their time to help Technology can't do that. You know, even if you had some technology, they wouldn't have been able to, you know, take this new legislation that's just arrived and automate it and give an automated output. Only human beings can do that. That's a great point. It can't, sometimes it doesn't move fast enough, but it, that's okay. Other times it doesn't move fast enough. And that could be the difference between, you know, life or death or a border being open, you know, a humanitarian corridor opening up for 24 hours. Well, they need to know where they're going. Yeah. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a, that's, a, that's a great point and and a great reminder too that um, again for anybody for people who do think that technology, can, you know, we can't. It's going to take away our, our jobs and it, it's not. It, it's just it's going to automate the things that we've we've right. hated to do anyway. This exactly, whole time. <laughs> and it gives us the time to do all the things that perhaps you know, we've never had a chance to, and the pandemic has kind of done that, you know, more people are working from home and just having, like I say, being able to go in the middle of your day to do something that you wouldn't have been able to do because you were commuting to an office. That's kind of the way I see, you know, technology. I'm not scared of it stealing a job. I'm looking forward to the day that I can have a three-day week as a result of technology enhancements. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Wink, wink, nod, nod. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> People at Newton Chess are watching. <laughs> Let's work on the three-day week. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of experimentation going on around the world with three-day, four-day weeks, and a lot of different work uh, uh, arrangements. And yeah, we're in a really interesting time right now in the world, both good and bad. And and it'll be it'll be really fascinating to look back on this. And you know, 
five to 10 years and, and think about how it's different from, you know, early 2000s. This has been really fascinating. I, 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 uh, I appreciate the, the insight, especially that you've shared around sort of your view on, on technology and uh, around acquisitions, you know, and like sometimes buy versus build is important. Other times you have to build because it's coming from a, a suggestion, as you mentioned earlier, from um, a prospect or from an existing client. Um, so, so, so thank you for that. I, um, I like to end as much as I can on sort of an interesting or, or maybe fun uh, note. Um, I'm curious, especially because you're clearly a polyglot, you've lived all over the world. This may be a hard question to answer, but do you have a favorite word in any language? And I say this because there are some, there are some words in some languages that are so unique and kind of, you know, that, that people have that favorite word. I don't have one. I, I don't. And I know a few languages, but I, I wanted to see if you might have one. Yeah, well, I wouldn't say it's a favorite word, but there are words that, so the French word, and I don't know whether you, it just, I mean, it, it kind of, it kind of means a warm kiss or hug, you know, mm. it's like, but friends will say to each other when they say goodbye. Like, mm. it's basically the, the kisses that they do when you, you walk into a room or when you're leaving. And, you know, when I lived in, you know, when I lived in Japan, for example, it was kind of this thing I wanted to say to my Japanese friends when they left me. I wonder, and I was like, how, like, where is this word in this language? So I think in every language you'll realize that there's this word that cannot be replaced in another language and, and you're looking for it. So I wouldn't say it's my favorite word. There's so many, so many amazing words out there. But um, I think it's those little words that just are not translatable into other languages. Those are my favorite words. Yeah, I, I love that. B is, what is it? Bizu? Bizu, yeah. Bizu, bizu. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, it's the, it's the transliteration of the hugs and the kisses. Yeah, basically. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I want to bid a bisou to everybody who is... Uh, <laughs> Perfect usage of it. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Manpreet, thank you. This was, uh, this was just a wonderful conversation, and it was really nice to learn about you and, and you know your journey. And I think um, you've had a really interesting one because you've seen a lot of sides of the industry for um, you know a, a number of years each, and I think it feels like it's culminated into um, something cool because now you're at the helm of, or at least supporting a technology product, and it's great to have all the insights from both the immigration side and the broader mobility side to be able to um, continue to build that out. So thank you. Um, thank you again for staying so late. I appreciate it, and, and for all of your, um, your, the, your answers and your, the great conversation. So. Uh, I appreciate it. Bisous. Um, Bisous to you too. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, you know, especially given given that, you know, you've got a lot going on in your personal life and, and you know, this crisis has personally impacted you. Thank you so much for, to, yeah, letting the show go on, I suppose. Yeah, show must go on. We have to. We have to. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Manpreet. Thank you.